Smartcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Wall Street. I went to Wall Street to get seriously rich, but I didn't get rich. Hollywood Boulevard. I went to Hollywood to be a movie mogul. I didn't become a movie mogul. Washington, D.C. The president and Mrs. Ford have invited us down to Palm Springs. He's been there. I love the entertainment business. Done that. We're being hired by a company called Carolco Pictures. And that. Was the night before Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. And just about everything else you can imagine. I thought of myself as somebody who was a double agent. He knew a lot of famous My people. experience with Orson Welles. How can you possibly hang out with that low-life Frank Sinatra? And now he's as talking. Of that, I was invited to some fancy dinner. This is the podcast. Who the f is Roger Smith? But my real goal was to have an interesting life surrounded by interesting people, and at that, I succeeded beyond my expectations. In this edition, Roger walks the red carpet at the Oscars, and he's in Germany where he bumps into no less than Jack Kennedy, and later, the actor who exposed himself to Jackie O. Oh my. Let's start at the Academy Awards. I hadn't planned to go to the Oscars. I was supposed to be back in New York on the, a plane when they were taking place when John Calley, the most intelligent, brilliant film executive I ever encountered, said, you know, would you like to go to the Oscars? And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I don't have a dinner jacket with me. He said, Roger, it's a studio. We have a wardrobe department. We have 500 dinner jackets. Yeah. So that's solved. Then I had to get a date. And I asked the voluptuous French actress Genevieve Gilles, who was the last mistress of Daryl Zanuck, and boy, did she make money off of that deal. And she said, no, I don't want to go unless I am nominated. I said, Genevieve, I think this is your only chance to go. I would take it now. She said, no, no, but I have a friend staying with me who would, I think, love to go. And she's visiting here from Norway. I said, okay. She said, she's very beautiful. And turns out this was like March. She was Miss February in Playboy. And let me tell you, I was the most junior executive in the Warner section. And I walked down the red carpet with all these people and the flashbulbs stopped popping. Not for me, they didn't know who I was, but for her, she was just knockout gorgeous. And the reason why it's such a misery is in L.A. you have to be in your seat at 3 o'clock in the afternoon for the thing which begins at like 5.30, the, the actual taping. And you're not allowed to move. If you have to move, you've got to get somebody to fill in your seat so there won't be a, a hole in the TV thing. And that was the great year of Godfather Part Two, And I was very excited because I thought then and think to this day that the single greatest post-war American movie is Godfather Part Two. I usually ask people if they prefer Part One or Part Two, and if they say Part One, I never ask their opinion on anything again. <laughs> anyway, uh, we had a very nice time, and I had to go straight from there, and we had a limousine, to the airport to take the red eye back, and I said, 
I would like to spend a couple of days in New York. She said, I don't have any clothes with me. I said, oh, you can get clothes. They have stores in New York. You can buy something to wear. You got, you're looking, you, you know, she got on the, on the red eye in an evening gown and we flew to New York and had a very nice couple of days. Uh, I don't want to come off as this sort of successful seducer. I was really very mild mannered and I, I went, got by on, on charm. In May of 1963, it was one month after I had arrived in Germany as a lowly PFC in the United States Army. And while I wasn't thrilled about being in the army, I was very happy about being in Germany because I'd never been to Europe before. And I thought, I'm in Europe, yay. When I'd been there about a month and I'd gotten friendly with the colonel, I found out that President Kennedy was going to be making this tour in June of German cities. And I got myself assigned for a couple of days to the public information office so I could just be there and watch. And, and I was stunned at this euphoric greetings of Kennedy. I mean, I realized if Conrad Adenauer had gone to America, the crowds would have been one deep. And they were just mad for this guy. And I, and I was mad. I was mad for Kennedy, too, but I didn't think the average German shared that view. But anyway, I was able to see him in Frankfurt and Mainz, and it was really wonderful. I wasn't with him for Berlin. But I stood in the PX where the, on the army base where they sell television sets and watched the speech live on TV. And, and I had a sense of its significance. However, it's now almost exactly six months later. And it's evening in Germany on November 22nd, 1963. And I am the sole person in charge of the communication center for, the, for Rhein-Main base, a major Air Force base, but we were an army detachment on it. And the teletype flies into action about uh, 7.30, 8 o'clock German time, saying President Kennedy shot. Uh, and it, at that point, it didn't have any details about his condition. Those came in about 30, 40 minutes later. But in those days, remember, there was no satellite television. I mean, there was the next, the funeral, we got half an hour, literally, that was it. There was not the kind of communications. And the instructions on the telex was to immediately alert the Air Force base commander and have him shut the base down. Nobody leaves, nobody comes on. We didn't know what was going on, right? I didn't like that idea, however, because I was going off duty at eight o'clock and my replacement had just arrived and I wasn't gonna get stuck with a bunch of my not so Kennedy friendly fellow soldiers. So I said to the guy, I said, here, you don't have to rush this over, just in 15, 20 minutes, get in a Jeep and take it over to the headquarters, giving me enough time to run to the barracks, change into my civvies, and get off the base just in time. I later realized I'd risked a serious court-martial, but I didn't think of it that time. And it was because I was so struck by, in the next few days and weeks and months, how the Germans loved Kennedy and how much they cared about him, and, and how my fellow soldiers had either contempt or just Lack, total lack of interest. I was the only one who was noticeably, you know, probably only Democrat in the crowd. And because most of these people were in for the regular army, not just they were, unlike me, I was a draftee. Any case, whenever anything important happens in Germany, you go to the main train station. That's where people gather, the Hauptbahnhof. 
And I was there with this crowd of people who were so obviously moved, because at this point now, of course, it's confirmed that he's dead. And over a loudspeaker came, they announced the voice of, of Ludwig Erhardt, the then chancellor. And my German at this point, after six months of, of study, was okay. But his final sentence, I remember it exactly. He said, Er hat geschickte gemacht, er war ein Mann. He has made history, he was a man. It was so moving to see the people with their tears in their eyes and everything. And then the next day, to go back to the base, and only thing my fellow soldiers cared about was the fact that on Monday we'd get the day off for the funeral. That was thrilling to them. But what was interesting was they all came to me because I was known to be the only member of the company who ever been seen reading a newspaper. And they said, who's president now? Now, if you think that's odd that they didn't know, let me tell you, half of them knew there was someone called the vice president, but couldn't name him. The other half said, oh, really? They thought of that? That was real smart of them. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and that night, one of my real redneck fellow soldiers says, well, you know, that's what Kennedy gets for shooting his mouth off. I was so infuriated that I did something I had never done before and have never done since. I hauled off and, and slugged him as hard as I could in the jaw. I don't think I did a lot of damage. He was bigger than me and he was, about, he was starting to pummel me when, thank goodness, my fellow soldiers intervened and pulled me off and pulled him off and so I wasn't uh, badly hurt. But I'd never hit anybody in the face before, but I felt motivated by that. But what was really interesting was the next night, I had been invited due to a friendship with an American businessman uh, to a dinner being given by the U.S. Consul General in Frankfurt. His name was Ford, his wife. And I assumed it was going to be called off because of the assassination. But I got a call from someone at the consulate saying, well, we're only 12 people. We've decided to have a very quiet, low-key event just so people can sit around and talk about how they're feeling. And so I found myself in this very elegant consul general building and by far the youngest person there and by far the least important person there. But one of the guests was a man known to every German at the time, and maybe even still today, but not well known in America, named Hermann Ops. Hermann Ops was the head of Deutsche Bank, long before it had met Donald Trump. And Mr. Ops was generally credited as being the power behind the Wirtschaftswunder, the economic rebirth of Germany in the post-war era. Obviously, Adenauer and Erhardt, the chancellors, got some of the credit, but he was not only was the head of Deutsche Bank, he was on the board of every major German company. And he seemed very charming. I later learned that he was also the director of IG Farben during the entire Nazi period, very well liked by the Nazi regime and an employer of slave labor. That didn't come up at dinner, strangely. Any case, at the dinner party, someone asked him, excuse me, why is it that you think that Ger the German people responded so particularly to John F. Kennedy? What was it about him 
that made them have this really deep emotional relationship. And he said, well, you know, until Kennedy was elected, the leaders of the Western world were named Eisenhower, Churchill, and de Gaulle. They were all the people who had fought World War II. Kennedy was the first lieutenant to become a head of state. And when he went to Berlin and when he said, ich bin ein Berliner, the German people took that to mean, you are forgiven. It was very powerful for them. And I thought, you know, that makes complete sense. It was obviously, since this is what, 58 years ago, I remember it almost word for word. And in the next few days and weeks, you just saw the grief among the Germans. And I mean, you go into the men's rooms, they had little framed pictures of Kennedy. There's a thing called the Putzfrau. Every men's room comes with a woman to make sure everything goes all right. And um, it was just an amazing thing. And I think it's a reflection partly of what uh, Mr. Ops was saying. His youth meant he was, it was bringing him you know, a new frontier, as, as he called it. There was that the world had changed and, and he was obviously so unbelievably charming and attractive. I had seen him in January of 61, the week before the inauguration, he came to Harvard to resign from the board of overseers, which was required by now becoming president. And there was a crowd waiting to greet him as he went in. And he looked, he had just come from Palm Beach. He was tan. I mean, he looked like a god. And the undergraduates, they, oh, these were all men at those in that day, um, were just cheering mightily. And he went in and he said, I'm meeting with President Pusey, the head of the university. He said, don't worry, I'll defend your interests. And when he came out an hour later, uh, out of a different side of the building, we were all carefully behind ropes that they had gotten to make sure there was a path for him, except we ingenious undergraduates had untied the rope. And the minute he actually came out, we all swirled into a mass surrounding him. And it was probably given the Secret Service nerve, but it was, well, first of all, we were Harvard undergraduates. He was from Harvard and uh, one by one, he was taking our professors and sending them off to run the country, we, which was how we thought the world should be run. We, we later found out they brought us the Vietnam War, but nobody's perfect. I had to ask the logical question, did you ever meet Jackie? And because it's Roger, there's a great story. Well, <laughs> yes, I met her in an odd way Jean Stein, who is the, one of the daughters of Jules Stein, the founder of MCA, and had, at that time was Jean Vanden Heuvel, gave a party at her Central Park West apartment at which I was present and which Jacqueline Kennedy was there. Norman Mailer was there, and the person, however, who was most memorable was Michael J. Pollard of Bonnie and Clyde fame. And I'm standing in the next room, but I have a view into the room where Jackie Norman Mailer is there when Michael J. Pollard walks up and exposes himself to Mrs. Kennedy. <laughs> there was quite a commotion, <laughs> and Norman Mailer became the knight who rescued her and shielded her vision from this sight and came out and announced to the crowd, don't worry, it was no big thing. That's my only time I met her. If none of his stories were about you, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Who the f*** is Roger Smith is recorded in an undisclosed bunker somewhere on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. 
All opinions are Mr. Smith's own, but everything he says happened because he was there. Bill Bergoli is our producer and editor. I'm Bill McCuddy. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Hey guys, it's Miriam Love here, and I want to share something very special with you. Check out my new release, All In, the Spanish remixes, out now on Electric Acid Records. And always remember, be love, share love, all love. Available now wherever you listen to music. Electric Acid.